Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together on this Sabbath day and to be anticipating what uh, the Lord will do in us and in our midst this day. The uh, title for this morning's talk from Romans chapter 3 is Everyone Needs Grace. I didn't pick that title, but I love that title, and it is a great way to describe the content that we're going to be dealing with this morning, which is foundational. Um, It's interesting, we talked about this as we discussed Romans chapter 1, but it's as if uh, Paul, like my father used to do, uh, is saying to us in this amazing epistle to the Romans, do you want the good news first or the bad news? And of course, in Romans 1 and throughout the book, we get good news and bad news, um, but we really can't understand the gospel if we don't have both. So we begin in Romans 1 with God's righteousness, and then the end of Romans 1 deals with godless unrighteousness. In Romans 2, we see something of God's forbearance, and then at the end of Romans 2, we begin to see the word that judgment is coming for all and to all. So the good news starts with bad news. And it may seem that that is something that is perhaps not very important to note. Um, But in reality, it's very important to note. Many uh, churches in our modern context work very hard, just like many parents do in our modern context, to uh, create situations where we can avoid the bad news. Um, I uh, was really struck as Rachel and I moved to North Carolina and we began to live in the country and we began to take in animals. The experience that it was for our kids when they were caring for animals and then having to bury those animals at different stages and seasons of life. And we talked about whether or not we would keep them away from those hardships. I think it's our natural instinct as parents to do that, right? To protect from things that are hard and to try to pave that golden path. Um, But in reality, while sometimes that can be important and helpful, it's also very important and helpful as we help our kids to grow up to uh, know what it is to experience something of suffering. I mentioned my dad a couple minutes ago. I'll never forget when he told me that uh, he had some news for me about college. And when I asked him what that news was, he said, 
I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to pay for half of your college, and you're going to pay for the other half. Unlike most of your friends, I am going to help you to experience the goodness of this thing that you're going to experience by having to struggle with figuring out how to pay for a part of it. And I know that your friends are going to tell you in many cases that their parents have taken care of their college education. What's your big deal when you're having to scramble and work um, even during those college years? But I'm telling you, in the end, you will recognize it as a gift. The good news came with some bad news, it seemed. And so it is with the gospel. The good news starts with bad news. The Heidelberg Catechism is famously formed around this idea called the triple knowledge, guilt, grace, gratitude, that the apprehension, the taking hold of the gospel starts with an awareness of our brokenness, a, an apprehension of our guilt, and then an apprehension of the grace that covers that guilt that then prompts us to live lives not out of compulsion as much as out of gratitude to God who has given us that grace to cover our guilt. But you see how it starts with an awareness of the bad news. Um, this, again, is not unimportant, especially as so many churches move away from messages about sin, about brokenness, about depravity, the depravity that's in our own hearts, which is a part of what we're going to be dealing with today. I looked up um, just for uh, context what Google when I entered a Google search and said, what is Romans 3 about, would give back to me. And actually, it's not unhelpful. What I found on Google uh, top response was this. Paul's message in Romans 3 is that no one, Jew or Gentile, lives a perfect life. All are sinners. And no one will be justified or declared righteous simply by observing the law. Instead, under the new covenant, Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, and those who put their faith and trust in him will be declared righteous. This is a pretty good overview of what's happening there in some respects, but we're going to go deeper, because there are some really foundational points here that I think this very typical approach of what Romans 3 is about um, do not give us. So we're going to read through the passage, and we're going to read through the passage in sections. Uh, this is the first section, and then we're going to break each section of the passage apart a bit, put it into context, draw to a conclusion, and then have time for Q&A, because I think this is the kind of passage in Scripture that is going to create opportunity for interesting Q&A. So here's what 
Paul writes at the beginning of Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So why is Paul beginning with this question, what advantage has the Jew? He's beginning with this question because in Romans 2, as he prepares to make the affirmative statement that all are under condemnation, he wants to make sure that his audience understands that this does not exempt his Jewish brothers. And so in Romans chapter 2, he is saying it's not about whether or not you have the outward mark of circumcision. It is about whether or not you have the circumcision of the heart that comes from knowing what it is to be under the mercy of God. But now he pivots. So this is important because it's context. Um, The text without context is a pretext for a proof text, my Old New Testament professor D.A. Carson used to say. So uh, as we move through this first verse and through the verses following, it's important to keep this um, in mind, that we need to put the text in their context, and if we don't, um, we're going to be creating a pretext for other proof texts needed. So much in every way is the benefit or the advantage of being a Jew, being part of the covenant community. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul says. And in this, he's effectively reaffirming what's reaffirmed elsewhere, that to be a part of the covenant community of the living God, even for those who are not circumcised of heart, brings blessing and um, benefit. Uh, R.C. Sproul puts it this way as he's processing this little verse. He says, just so, in other words, even as this was the case for those that Paul was speaking to, as he was saying, hey, you have benefit in being part of the covenant community. Whether I'm calling you out because you're not yet circumcised of heart or not, you have benefit in being part of the covenant community. R.C. Sproul says, just so, there is advantage to us in receiving baptism and being a member of a Christian church. There are a multitude of advantages to that in every conceivable manner. Paul goes on then to say this, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one else were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could judge God judge the world? 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So what do we make of this first um, section here? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Um, and this um, second passage as well, different people, of course, have interpreted these statements in different ways. R.C. Sproul, um, in his book, talks of those who say, free from the law, O blessed condition, we can sin all we want and still have remission. In other words, um, people responding to what it is to, to uh, struggle with the freedom of the will, the bondage of the will, and God's um, providential working in our lives um, react um, to this passage in, in different ways. Um, clearly, God is reminding us that he is righteous, that he is just in holding us account, an account to justice, um, but uh, at the same time that um, we are called to obedience to the law, what Paul uses as that great expression over and over the obedience of faith, uh, that the law uh, condemns us. The law does not um, make us righteous. And God holding us to righteous account does not make him unrighteous. And as you work through some of these passages, they're challenging, and they're challenging in part because Paul's anticipating questions and people going in different directions with the same, the same fundamental truth, which we'll be unpacking here in a moment, and effectively anticipating their objections and going there and then coming back and then going to a different kind of objection or con conclusion and confronting it, um, and it can twist us up a little bit um, as Paul is continuing to make his primary point, which is that no one is righteous, that we all are under uh, the mercy, that none of us are deserving of God's favor. And here's how he uh, frames this important statement. He goes back to the Old Testament before he goes forward to his universal declaration. What then, he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So these are difficult words. Uh, These are words that go to the core of who we are as people by nature. Last night, as I was looking at some of the commentary around this and some of the commentary that, on the one hand, takes this as it seems to read and understands it to be the doctrine of uh, total depravity. Um, On the other hand, those who look at the idea of total depravity and see it as anathema, see it as a horrific concept, really one of the doctrines that is most attacked in connection with Reformed theology. The idea that people are ever always bent toward evil. So here's how Calvin put it. Calvin said in dealing with this passage, if man's nature is depraved, not simply in all of its parts, but in such a way that each part is thoroughly corrupt, then there is no good at all which man can perform in any sense of the word which is pleasing in the sight of God. He cannot do natural good. Now, I want that to sink in um, for all of you as we process this passage because we don't want to believe that that is true even if we can look at Scripture and say it is. We want to believe as I often would say to my kids, we're better than that, (laughs) right? It's actually our nature to think that our nature is not so depraved, but is actually good and getting better all the time. So these are tough, these are tough words, and we need to understand them, we need to consider them carefully. These words all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In the context of Scripture talking about men doing righteous things as they imitate Christ, how do we reconcile that conflict? How do we reconcile the conflict of... um, what sanctification itself is, which is a, an inclination by the working of the Holy Spirit in us toward the things of God and against the things of the enemy of our souls. It's, it's not so easy. Martin Luther processed this passage this way, he said, free will after the fall, and consider this carefully, these are profound words, 
has the power to do nothing but sin and resist grace. Think about those um, words. R.C. Sproul describes this uh, doctrine of total depravity in this way. It is not that man has completely lost his power of choosing or making decisions, but his moral power to do certain things has been completely lost. Namely, man has lost the ability to convert himself or to will any spiritual good on his own steam. It's an interesting way of putting it. Therein is the crux of the matter of the doctrine of total depravity. Man has lost his moral power to do certain things completely lost his moral power to do certain things, namely the ability to convert himself or to will any spiritual good on his own steam. I love uh, signatures, by the way. You might tell that. I, I always just find it interesting even to go back in history and see a person's signature and see what I think I might be able to see or not about who they are based on their signature. Um, and it's always nice when you can look at a signature and you can actually tell that it's a signature rather than just like a line. <laughs> when I see just a line, I think about something too. Okay, It's going to be a little trickier to get to know that person. One of the signatures that I saw one of the signatures that I have seen, perhaps more than any signature in my life, was from my mentor uh, growing up and, uh, and through life, uh, Stuart Briscoe. He uh, would always hand sign his letters and I've received hundreds of them from him over the years. Stuart married my wife Rachel and I. We traveled around the world to different places and um, his signature was special to me. But his signature with regard to this issue of total depravity uh, was very special to me too. He was mentored by a man named J.I. Packer who's one of my favorite theologians. And as Stuart processed near the end of his life, his autobiography in a book called um, Flowing Streams, he talked about how Packer marked his understanding of human depravity as somebody who had come from outside the Reformed tradition. And he said this, in later years, I learned theologically from J.I. Packer that total depravity does not mean that man and woman is at every point as bad as he can be. Rather, he is at no point as good 
as he should be. He is not totally depraved beyond redemption. He is depraved in his totality. Every part of his being is twisted and warped and less than it ought to be. So when I look at some of you, even around this room, I, I do not see somebody incapable of doing good things unto the Lord. Um, and this helps me to process um, the, the doctrine of total depravity as it's given to us, I believe, clearly in Scripture um, in this way. I, I just, after one month of blackout, on my way to church this morning, looked down at my phone, and it was my son, Peter Van Erden's face. He's been in blackout because he's been at officer candidate school, and for the first uh, four weeks, the phones are checked into a locker, and he has no contact with anybody, and they say to the parents and other loved ones, just no, no news is good news. <laughs> but I saw that face, that cute face, which by the way is a picture of him when he was like 12, um, pop up on the screen and it just poof, shot uh, arrows of joy into my heart. And as we prayed uh, at the end of our call, I prayed for we are God's workmanship. Peter Scott, a son of thunder, is your workmanship, Lord, created in Christ Jesus to do good things which you have prepared in advance for him to do. So if we believe that there are good things for us to do in God's providence... The understanding of total depravity does not say we are incapable of bearing fruit for God's glory. It doesn't tell us that. But if we look at this passage, if we look at this quote, it does not mean that at every point we are as bad as we can be. It does mean that we are never what we should be in any given moment. And to me, that helps me understand the depth, the thoroughness of my depravity, my total depravity, absent the work of God in me, um, while still challenging me to understand the importance of bearing good fruit. And candidly, I've been wrestling with this. And you can't approach the nature of man, you can't approach a concept like human nature and the depravity of it without wrestling. Like wrestling should be part of what you're feeling right now. You should be feeling angst. I should be feeling angst. Paul was feeling angst, right? Any of you seen the 
actual signature of Paul. <laughs> Paul said, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is wrestling. He's wrestling with the depths of his depravity. But has Paul been made just by the justifier? He has, but he's still wrestling with his depravity and the total, utter depths of it. <clears throat> to transition from one great theologian to another, <laughs> as I'm inclined to do, Indiana Jones, right? Only the penitent man will pass. You see it in Paul. You see when he's calling himself out as the chief of sinners. Even after giving his bragging rights, calling himself out as the chief of sinners and wrestling with it to say the good news begins with the bad news and only the penitent man will pass is a key part of every conversation about real spiritual growth. It starts with that first step. Only the penitent man will pass. And what does the word penitent mean? It means a feeling or the expression of sorrow for sin or wrongdoing and a disposition toward atonement and amendment and repentance that results in a contrite spirit. I have talked with people, including some very close to me, who believe that it's unbiblical for us to carry a penitent, contrite spirit because the work is done. Our sin is as far from us as the east is from the west. Get over it. That's a thing of the past. We're moving forward. But that is not, that is not um, a healthy approach to cultivating a life in Christ it is, in fact, essential that we are mourning about our spiritual brokenness, even as we're rejoicing in the grace that covers it, 
and then responding with gratitude. It's not like you just get to live out of gratitude without remembering the guilt and the grace that covers it. Um, We're going to talk more about that in a second, but here's Spurgeon. Genuine spiritual mourning for sin is the work of the Spirit of God. Which probably means, by the way, that if we're not experiencing genuine and spiritual mourning for sin, that we are not experiencing the presence and the work of God in us. Repentance is to choice a flower to grow in nature's garden. Pearls grow naturally in oysters, but penitence never shows itself in sinners except divine grace works it in them. If thou hast one particle of real hatred for sin, God must have given it thee. For human nature's thorns never produce a single fig. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Gosh, he was so much the prince of preachers, wasn't he? His mastery of words. I just want to read it one more time. And look at that signature too. (laughs) Genuine spiritual mourning for sin is the work of the Spirit of God. It is not wrought by us. It is God's work in us. Repentance is too choice a flower to grow in nature's garden. Pearls grow naturally in oysters, but penitence never shows itself in sinners, except divine grace works it in them. If thou hast one particle of real hatred for sin, God must have given it thee, for human nature's thorns never produced a single fig. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So, Paul takes us to this conclusion. And this is not a conclusion contrary to what some people might want you to believe. This is not about some matter of theology that's out there. Uh, It's just to debate about, like, the sovereignty of God versus free will. It's just argumentation. No, Um, this lands in really important places. Let me give you um, a peek forward at what Paul says later in chapter three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace only as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then this little conclusion. 
So then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. I just want to make the point that if uh, this experience of salvation is about people who have a bent toward the good, actually then apprehending the good, there is something to say about reason for our boasting. Paul, putting this whole passage in context, putting this whole presentation about the depths of the brokenness of man, meaning men, women, boys, girls, to be specific, because nothing is dynamic until it's specific, meaning us, meaning you, meaning me. There is no ground for boasting from us because we, on our own devices, are utterly, totally broken and inclined to turn from God at every moment. Now, I looked at this passage um, again from the lens of different people. Uh, Let me give you, for example, this commentary from Catholic Answers, a conservative evangelical Catholic organization, referring to the way that this passage in Romans is referenced in Reformed theology and why it's wrong. Catholic Answer says, the psalmist clearly refers to both evildoers and the righteous. These and other passages from Romans tell us that Christ came to make us just. Not that there are absolutely none who are just. We must stress again that it is because of the justice of Christ communicated to the faithful that their actions and indeed they themselves are truly made just, but they indeed are truly made just. Clearly, Phineas was justified by his works and not only by faith. In other words, Phineas's works are truly just as he is just, to use the words of John 3, 7. So, I raise this as an example because some would say, no, 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 that passage that we just discussed in Romans chapter 3 is a statement about the unjust and we are the just. And we are the just, to give them credit, because we're in Christ, so we're just, they're unjust. And the total depravity that was spoken of relates to them It doesn't relate to us. Okay? That's a way of interpreting and countering some of the commentary that you've just seen on this passage. 
Now the problem is that if you go back, what's happening to this text as we put it in context, Paul is going back to the Old Testament, pulling those passages about the depth of human depravity, yes, in the unjust, but then he's making the same statement again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He keeps contextualizing in the context of all of us are in this uh, together. So that um, challenge uh, falls. But I, I want to make a, a different statement, and it's just a general statement, about humility, um, humility and, and the gospel. It's been said, and Tim Keller like to say this often, that there have ever and always been three great groups of people in the world. Those who do not believe in God, or they don't care. It's always been a very small percentage of the world, by the way. Always, including in modern times. Then there are those who believe that there is a God and they have to earn his favor. And when you see most of the religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, I would say many who would call themselves Protestants, they hold to that view that there is a God. I have to be good by nature and by action. It's almost like the visual that is created when you approach the dome and the rock. Some of you have been there, you go through the gate of scales, as they refer to it, which is a reminder to every person of the Islamic religion that as they approach Allah, they are to remember that the question of the day, ever, always, will be, will Allah determine in the end that your good deeds have outweighed your bad? And we're seeing uh, live in the news how some think that they can earn his favor. So, there is that second group, and it is a great, big, grand group. And then there is the gospel, which comes up the middle. And, and I want you to consider something really, really, really profound with me. The gospel way comes up the middle and says, there is a God, but you cannot earn his favor. His favor has been won by another, and his name is Christ. You can be under the mercy of Christ. The gospel way in that regard is entirely different, entirely different from everybody else in that big group of people that says there is a God and I must earn his favor. And that changes everything among other things because the further up and further in you go to the creed that I am my own, there is no God and I don't care, the further up and further in that you go 
to being an autonomous man, a self-made man, a man who stands on his own, by his own strength, until your existence is ground into nothingness. You know, the further up and further in you go in that worldview, the tougher and harder you are, the longer you can stretch your years, whatever it is, the more that you can demonstrate that you can survive among the fittest, the more reason you have to be proud. And guess what? In that other way, if salvation is about earning God's favor, the further up and further in you go, the more reason you have to be proud. In the gospel way, the further up and the further in you go, the more reason you have to be humble. It is a mark of truth that the gospel way is the way, the truth, and the life, that it is so profoundly different in that regard that it gives us this clear sense of what it is to be marked by um, humility versus all the other ways which would mark us by pride. Now, there are all kinds of implications of this. Um, imagine the implication of preaching that starts with a right-sized view of oneself and all of us and moves to a, um, a view of what it is to invite people to experience relationship with Christ. Spurgeon said this, again, if you believe that every man is totally depraved and that in and of themselves they do not have the nature, the disposition, the affection of the heart to run after God, and that therefore the only way that somebody can come to salvation is by God doing a work in them. It changes everything, including the way that you view preaching itself. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this, I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody will of his own free will turn to Christ. My hope, this is very politically incorrect <laughs> today. Let me just reread this. I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody will of his own free will turn to Christ. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of these people gathering here and say, you are mine and you shall be mine and I claim you for myself. All of this, uh, you know, in the end is um, taking us back to that grand invitation that we saw in Romans 1 that R.C. Sproul summarizes this way. He says, there's 
a great irony here. When Christ sets us free from slavery to the flesh, he calls us to the royal liberty of slavery to him. And um, that whole idea of knowing our bondage to sin and being released as slaves to sin by God's work in us, not because we're better and reached for it and made it happen, but because God chose us and chose to free us from slavery to the flesh in calling us to the royal liberty of slavery to him. Um, that is what's at bottom on this. And when we talked about Romans 1, we highlighted the fact that there is always the tendency to make doctrine like this a thing of the mind, a thing for mental gymnastics, for theological exercise and so forth. But this is about the grand dance. And this is a little excerpt from my journal, but I go back to it all the time because to me, it is a reminder of what life in Christ, of what gospel life, about what it is to be in, with, and for Christ means. It's this dance between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Thinking about things like our nature and our brokenness in connection to the way that we live that helps us to make right decisions um, orthokresis, the, the, the right decisions at points of testing. And I would just suggest to you that, as it's often said, if we get the God question wrong, we get everything else wrong. In God's providence, if we get the man question wrong, we also tend to get even God wrong. Um, and in this particular matter, we are being challenged by Paul in Romans 3 to make sure that we get the man question right, starting with ourselves, knowing ourselves truthfully, broken before God, needing to be under his mercy or we die. And that is um, a part of the glory of the gospel. It is, in fact, where the glorious gospel begins. It begins with our total depravity. Just as a side note, um, every reader uh, that I looked at last night, Burkhoff and Sproul and uh, Spurgeon and Keller and Luther and Calvin, Augustine, in some ways, uh, some would say that the Reformation began with Augustine. They all talk about 
the importance of this idea of total depravity. And actually, um, it's Sproul in one of his commentaries that says, if the doctrine of total depravity falls, if you don't believe in it, you're not going to believe with the U, the L, the I, or the P, either if the T drops. But if you believe that the T is a faithful reflection of what God gives us in the scriptures and what is indeed written on each of our hearts, that because the law is written there, we can see our brokenness there, then it creates the opposite effect where the U, the L, the I, and the P logically follow if we take hold of the T. Um, Those of you who've studied Reformed theology know what I mean, and those of you who've not are wondering what in the world I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, So we are going to end there so that we have time for discussion on this very hot topic of our own nature and its depravity, its relative goodness or badness. And um, I want to hear from you on all that, but let's close in a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, you have given us deep and challenging words to consider this morning in Romans 3 as we're reminded that none of us are righteous, not a one. We all have turned from you, our eyes dashing in different directions, looking for ways of escape when your lordship takes claim of us and calls us to account out of love. And we ask that you would help us in earnest humility to consider ourselves rightly, coram Deo, before the face of God, and to recognize our brokenness and to delight in the grace that covers it so that we are marked as those who are grateful, truly grateful. Knowing that if we aren't marked, even when life circumstances are so difficult sometimes, by a deep sense of gratitude that we likely have not come to understand the gospel that starts with bad news and then gives us good news about which our hearts should be made glad. Help us, like the psalmist, to declare, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that our hearts may rejoice and be glad all our days. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Yes. Um, the, going back to the hold, hold on a second. Okay.
Yes, I can. Going back to the Catholic answer thing, isn't it correct to say that Phineas and the work that he did, he simply made a decision and God used grace, the covering of grace that you're talking about, to cause that to count for righteousness? Isn't that what, what you're basically saying? Yes, I'm, I'm trying to navigate the difficult balance of, on the one hand, having to look at Phineas's action and saying um, that it's the same as any other action. In other words, it's described as a good work, if I can use that expression to provoke some of you. Um, but I think Phineas would be the last person to say, see, I'm good. And, um, and the, the passage in that context, and there was a larger, um, it was part of a larger essay from Catholic Answers in response to Romans 3 and the Reformed interpretation of it. <clears throat> but they're effectively saying, no, 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 there are men who are just, and there are men who are unjust. We are the just. And I just want you to know, if you take that view, we are the just because we are the tree bearing fruit, that while we are called to be trees bearing fruit, <laughs> we are, if we go that way, very justifiably proud. And that, there's something wrong with that because the gospel doesn't, Christ does not say, follow me and become more proud, right? Um, it's the opposite of the fruit that should be bearing in that regard. So what, how, do you, how do you navigate that balance in a story like this where you say, I know that I am to be about bearing good fruit, but I don't want to become arrogant and think it's me that is the tree that's bearing good fruit. I, I think a part of that is knowing that every good fruit is a work of God in us, that on our own we are dead and barren trees. Um, and I think that it's also important to note that that we are uh, at, the, at the, the core of the tree that we are, uh, twisted and actually inclined not to bear fruit. And if we don't understand that, at some point or other, it becomes about all of us, the, 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 the fruit makers, like we become the fruit makers, we can't help ourselves. We, we just like bend that way. And unfortunately, that is what I see um, in too many of my Catholic friends is a disposition toward works that ultimately make them much more central in not just uh, the Christian life, but also salvation itself. Is that helpful? Yes. Okay.
Yeah, it was a great question. It was a great question and a great response. Can you uh, talk about Luther's thinking when it comes to whereas the Catholics talk about a man is either just or he's a sinner I mean I'm sorry he's he's just or sinner but Luther talks about man as being a sinner and just at the same time yes that explains a lot of what you talked about today it does does anybody else have any comments on that David Uh, on that no, yeah. It's related to Cindy and what Steve was saying. So I, I see that there's a conflict in the Roman Catholic view and if they feel that they can be justified by their good works in some way, that they also believe that there's this so-called right of uh, last, last rites, which is a sacrament in their church, which implies that they need some last-minute justification, some external alien justification to come in and finish the job, which is sort of an admission that even the best Catholic person still needs those last rites and therefore is not completely justified. So it seems like there's a conflict there in their theology where they can say that a Christian's good works can somehow justify them, yet they have this need for this final bit of external justification. Yes. Uh, In fairness, I would say that most mainline Protestants that I know have the same view. They're They're all walking through the gate of scales every Sunday when they go to church. Because the, the gospel, as the gospel, is um, becoming a gospel plus for both of them. And, and, and this is where the Christian faith, as Chesterton put it, ironically himself a Catholic, has the ring of truth to it, that you can look at something like all of these different ways of walking lead the man who goes further up and further into them toward pride. And then there's this one way that further up and further in you go, the more that you understand the depths of your own depravity, your need for grace, and the privilege of living lives out of gratitude. So in this, in this um, same vein, yes, um, there is a definite propensity to think that we have enough good in us to muster up, to unction up our own justification and self-righteousness. And it always ever ends um, badly, whether you get your last rites or not. (laughs) Um, But I want to go back to your point, Stephen, because this is really, um, really critical. Can you, um, David, do you mind giving Stephen the mic one more time? And talk about the two, the two points that Luther, because the, the, it's, it's often this way, was God fully, was Jesus fully God or was he fully man? Yes. <laughs> yes, both and, right? And, and is man the chief of sinners or, I mean, just the most depraved and despicable of all living creatures, literally, or 
is he the crown of God's creation? Yes. I mean, and we can go on and on like that. This is part of the, the challenge, the paradoxes that have the ring of truth at the heart of Christian theology. So to your point, Luther said the Catholics of his day were saying it has to be this or that. And he said, no, it's both. both. Can you restate um, your question just so everybody processes that? Well, the Catholics either say you're good or you're bad. Luther said we're both, both good and a sinner. And coming to this church six years ago... Good good meaning made just. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry. Um, Yes. But coming to this church six years ago, I so appreciate how the men who get up on that pulpit preach that, that they're both righteous before God through faith in Christ alone, and they're still sinners. That is so freeing, Mm. had been for me and is today, Mm. to encourage me to continue this walk of faith. Mm. Because apart from that, I fall into that trap that the Catholics do, Mm. trying to earn my my favor. Praise God for this church. What a, what a good word that is, um, because, again, if you go back to that Catholic response, that Catholic answer, the uh, notion is there are just men and there are unjust men. In other words, there are men whose trees are dead and barren and yet... Um, there are men whose trees are bearing fruit for God and his glory as they live in Christ. Um, and you could look at it and say, yes, there's, there's truth to that. But if you detach what it is, as Phyllis said, to be a sinner but saved, um, then you're moving theologically in dangerous directions. So I, I just want to be really clear. This, this idea of total depravity, of a reckoning with what it is to be sinful at the root of our nature and inclined to be in rebellion against God and in service to ourselves as God, that we are twisted and in every part of our being warped and doing even in our very best moments less than we ought to do and holding that while at the same time holding the fact that in Christ we are made whole, we are made just before God um, and we are made those through whom God can work in our dead trees to bear fruit for his glory. So that's a really, really good point. So it's about 15 minutes after 10. If you need to get to your family or your children, these questions are, by the way, being recorded. It's really important for people that are not here. We do have three more questions, or actually four, Steve, Jen, Darby, and then Patrick. But if you need to leave, 
Please feel free to. It's about quarter after. Uh, the other service will be letting out soon. But should we continue these, sure. these questions? All right, Steve. But don't hesitate to leave, any yeah, of you who need to. Please. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about when uh, Jesus is talking about works in John chapter 15. Even there, he says, without me, you can do nothing. So I was thinking our contribution is always flawed and uh, combination, like you said, of wanting to do good but not able. So really the, all the good that we can do, we have to credit to him. Uh, just like he said, even, uh, even if we are uh, obedient, We've only done what God told us to do. It's not good enough. Mm. Uh, Christ has to make us like himself. Yes. Well, one of the things that struck me um, more recently than ever is that I've noticed that when I've had this awareness that we've been talking about this morning. Even in my very best moments, if I just have a second to detach and, and look at those moments, I'm always corrupting them. Now, and when I say my best moments, my best moments before God, where I'm emptying myself and he's filling me, even when that happens, I mess it up. And, and yeah, and I see some of your heads nodding, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where <laughs> as soon as you have a moment to consider, oh, Lord, thank you for what you did in that conversation. And it, and it was a less of you, more of God moment. It was just a beautiful thing. And, and you're just struck by the presence and the company of the Lord in that moment. And you, as soon as you start thinking about it, you mess it up. Because you twist it and you warp it to something less than it ought to be. If, and if we're, if, we're, if we're not in a consumer mindset as we approach the riches of biblical theology, we ought all to be able to recognize and understand that. Um, and when we do, it changes, it changes everything. It does. It just changes everything. Um, sorry. Um, I was just thinking about as we are born into this culture of self, um, and the and thinking. I work with children, so thinking about toddlers, I do it myself uh, mentality, <laughs> and then relating that to um, being a grown-up Christian. We're God's children. Um, and want to be growing in Christ all the time. So would you agree that um, graciously accepting help in this physical world where he has put us and given everything to us is a good way to let Christ in and let all of him into your hearts moment by moment and become a grown-up Christian more and more every day? Yes. Um, 
Yes, does anybody else have comment on that? Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Jen. Um, how we process these things in terms of good growth happening, the right appetites being shaped, um, moving away from the disposition, which makes me smile as I think about my grandkids, because I mean, I, I hear it every week. I do it myself. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, it's just a grand um, challenge. And, um, and if I understood your um, statement correctly, I agree with it uh, 100%. I was just going to comment uh, that uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he studied Augustine a lot. And Augustine's the author of uh, Simul Justus et Peccator. And when he examined Luther, basically he extracted, I mean, when Luther examined Augustine, basically extracted imputed versus imparted, and the Catholics fall on the um, imparted side of accountability of righteousness versus imputed, which hits the source that God is all uh, in the sense of our, uh, of our goodness. That's <laughs> mm. it's all, it's all imputed to us. It's not uh, innate at all, but that's where the Catholics drop the ball. Yep. And it's, it's Simon used to set peccator and there's tons an Augustine about that. Yes. Yeah, thanks for um, that added context, Darcy. Uh, again, we, we can think in some ways that this is Scripture 101, but it's, it's not um, being interpreted that way in the church in America today. In fact, the 101 is you take these actions to win this effect. That's the starting point. You, you know, the, the, the people out there, you're the reason for the celebration. You see how different that is than starting with the idea that I uh, actually, to the core, uh, am not by nature able, able, capable of reaching to God and securing this effect. God had to reach and take hold of me. That is an enormously different foundation to build upon where God is right sized and we are right sized. And the other approach will always have the effect of creating a very different kind of Christian in the end um, who's less inclined to meet hard suffering in God's providence well. Those are great questions and statements. Patrick's going to wrap it up and then... Um, we can we can fellowship some more and uh, and then head to service. I have uh, several ideas that I want to try and string together that 
are all interrelated. I'll try and be very brief. Um, all of this has made me think of Isaiah 46, um, and the context of Isaiah 46 is man-making idols, uh, silver and gold and of uh, livestock and, and bowing down to them, and the, the, um, the ludicrous nature of that. And um, In verse 3, uh, the word says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before birth. I carried you from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. And the passive nature of that, just like the Abrahamic covenant, mm. where it is God that takes on the covenant. Um, Abraham is, is passive. He's asleep. Mm. He's unable um, and thinking about that in the context of those good works, that these good works are made by God for us to do. What if it's less about the hands that are doing the works than it is about the one who made them to be done and the righteousness of that being, mm. not the hands that are doing it? Certainly results in a different way of seeing things. Certainly results in a different way of receiving things. Um, certainly results in a different way of being. Uh, and I just want to say that for years and years of my adult life, I thought the big thing was to become independent. That the mark of growing up was to become independent, not dependent on anything else. And the further up and further in I've gone, the more I've come to realize that actually the strongest men, and by that I mean, of course, men, women, boys and girls for that matter, are those who realize, in fact, how dependent they are and lay hold of it, apprehend it. Um, okay, Godspeed, everybody.